After 32 years, I came out of the closet as a gay Christian pastor. Finally, on the outside of that suffocating prison, I'm looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. It's not enough to become informed. We have to do something about the harm we're still witnessing within systems and spaces we've been loyal to for so long. It's time we become reformers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Confessions of a Reformer. I'm your host, Mike. And I've got a special guest with me today. Um, obviously, we're doing the series, um, Queer People in the Church. And I wanted to bring on a token straight white guy to chime <laughs> in on this conversation. Yay. So <laughs> so I've got Colby Martin with me today. Um, some of you may recognize his name from the book Unclobber or from maybe having seen him preaching out, out there in the world. Um, but yeah, we've got Colby Martin here today to talk about queer people in the church. Um, Colby, thanks for being with me here today. What up, Double M? Uh, <laughs> how many people call you that, or Eminem, or some version of Mikey M and the Comeback Kids? I don't know. Oh, just... literally no one. What? Okay, Nobody. Well, it's happening now. <laughs> those were those like several nicknames. You I've may, you may want to change your name of your podcast. Those are some, those are some good <laughs> ones there. Anyway, what's up, Mike? <laughs> hey, thanks. You for, again, yeah, you too. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Um, so listen, I know some of you may have never heard of Colby before. So um, this is my first time having Colby in this kind of a space. So I want to take a moment to give Colby a chance to just introduce himself. Um, Colby, your journey is fascinating. Um, I've read your book, obviously, know you on some level. So like, I understand your journey. But I know there are people here who maybe never heard of you before. So I want to just kind of give them a brief intro to your story, who you are, what you're doing in the world. Um, so as much detail or as brief as you'd like to be, we'd just love to give them like a starting point Starting point for Colby Martin. Colby, who are you? Where'd you come from? Where did I come from? Yeah, uh, thanks, man. So where to start? I guess on some level, I am, uh, there's, there's nothing all that interesting or surprising about my background or upbringing. I'm kind of just a generic um, recovering Baptist uh, <laughs> who was born and raised in a, in a Christian home. Um, my dad came from a long line of Baptists. My mom, I think, was a first-generation Christian when they got married. Uh, then my parents separated and divorced when I was like eight. Super traumatic, uh, horrible, has has shaped me and continued to shape me to this day. But that's not the point of this podcast. Is it childhood <laughs> trauma? Wait, do you get into that? Is that what we're here for? What did I get tricked into? Um, but no, so I grew up in uh, in the church, you know, doing the church thing multiple times a week, the Sunday morning, the Sunday night, the Wednesday, the choir practice, all that. And, you know, I, when I, when I got to, uh, got to high school and started hanging out in youth group, I had this experience uh, going into my senior year of high school where I wasn't super keen, like I was going to church, but I didn't really it's just another thing to do is because my mom always took me and my brothers and um, I liked the idea of morality. I liked the idea of being a good person. You know, I liked how it made me feel, but more I liked how it made me feel like I could be in the good graces of other people. Anyway, so I kind of just went to church to be like a good, good boy. And, uh, but I went on this, this youth experience, this youth trip going into the summer year of my, or the senior year of my high school, uh, the summer going into the senior year of high school. There we go. We found it. And Mike, it was one of those where the point of the, the, the week was to teach high school kids how to like witness to their peers, how to learn apologetics and like how to defend the faith and argue for how true Christianity is. And so in the morning they would like train you on apologetics and then they would send you out two by two, obviously, because that's biblical to the beaches of Southern California. Um, I grew up in Oregon. I don't know if I said that, but so we traveled down to this conference and I came back, Mike, from that first afternoon of like random street witnessing to people, you know, interrupting their lounging on the pristine beach to be like, Hey, if you, if you died right now, do you know where you would go? You know, just classic icebreaker questions <laughs> you know, we want to uh, talk to strangers about. Yeah. And I came back to my the room I was staying at. And I remember, again, I was like 17 years old. I remember just kind of collapsing on my bed and being overcome with this sense of uh, fraudulency. Like I was out there telling people about having a relationship with God through Jesus, uh, even though I really didn't have any 
concept or experience of it myself. It was just all up here, all up in the head. Like I knew Mm -hmm. the Bible answers, but I just, I felt like this total fraud. And I felt in that moment as though God were saying, Colby, you've got a, you've got a choice to make right now. And one option for you is to just kind of keep going as you're going, you know, just keep being kind of a, a selfish, arrogant high school kid who's just trying to be cool and do what you want to do and make life about you. <clears throat> Bless me. <clears throat> or I get choked up when I tell this story. No, um, <laughs> or actually I was sobbing. That was part of the whole thing as like 17 year old kid and I didn't ever cry and I'm like broken. And I felt this uh, sense or I could use this opportunity, use this moment, use this week really to kind of, as I would have phrased it back then, like, stop living for myself and living for something greater, living for something beyond, living for, at that time, I would have said, you know, living for God. And I don't even, Mike, I can't even explain why I chose the latter path. Um, and on some, on some level, I don't even know if it was me, like, it might have just been grace. I don't, I, I don't really know. But I, I, I opted to be like, all right, I'm going to give this God thing a try. I'm going to give this this being a Christian thing, like actual, I'm going to give it a go. And I remember tasting worship for the first time that night at the at the, the big gathering and just feeling this overwhelming sense. And at the end of the week, I just felt this sense of this calling to ministry. Like, I, I think I want to give my life to this work, mm. to be a pastor. Mm. So I came back to that trip and I graduated high school and I abandoned my plan to be a graphic designer. I wanted to travel to New York and be a graphic designer and um, and I'm like, nope, I need to go be a pastor. I need to go study the Bible and learn how to be a pastor. And that's what I did. I went and got my degree in pastoral ministry. And I started working at a church right out of college, uh, which led to another church, which led to another church. Um, and I'm fast forwarding just a little bit, because I think you told me the podcast is like four or five hours, and I don't <laughs> want to use all of it for the biographical opener. Um But I think as it relates to the point of this podcast, the reason why I give that context is just because it's, it's, is it important to me? I don't know. Maybe it is. It's important to me that people know that when I got to the point where I was ready to study the Bible and the topic of homosexuality, it, it came from a place of, I would describe it as a, a longing for integrity in terms of, um, if this is something I'm going to, I'm going to claim to believe. And at that time, you know, as I'm sure you can relate at that time, the belief was what the traditional conservative historical take on sexuality is that, you know, God designed male and female. And like, that's kind of the only acceptable uh, scenario in which human sexuality can be expressed. And so any version of that is an aberration or an abomination. And, and so it's a sin to be gay, blah, blah, blah. Right. That was the, the, the line and, and the, thinking given to all of us. I just remember thinking, because uh, there was a moment when I was studying to get licensed as a pastor, where my heart was sort of broken open by actually reading the policy of the church toward gay people, like how they couldn't be members and they couldn't serve in different levels of leadership. And I remember my heart just having the sense of, oh, like, I get it. It's a sin. It's not God's design, right? That's what I said back then. But like, how's, how are we treating people? Like this and so over the course of the next several years as i was auditing a lot of my faith a lot of my baptist evangelical faith one of the the pieces that i chose to audit was this topic of um, sexuality and the bible uh, because I, I i knew like if i was going to claim to believe a thing if i was going to take a position on a thing i wanted to to actually be able to say with conviction like i, I studied the thing um, and I and my opinion is coming from my own sense of of standing, not just what has been given to me. Mm. So I went into that. Um, this would have been like 2009 or something. I went into a kind of a, a season of study on this topic. And keep in mind, Mike, I didn't have any. You know, a lot of people who are in my in a situation similar to mine, um, they come to change their mind to be an affirming place theologically oftentimes because someone close to them is gay or someone close to them comes out and it sort of forces them to reckon with, 
man, I always thought this thing over here, but this person here, I care about a lot and they don't seem to be as scary as I was always told. And so that oftentimes leads people to a kind of shift in their theology. But I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I knew gay people and I probably had friends who were gay, but I didn't know it. Like this wasn't driven by a cousin who was gay or a friend. Like this was just me saying, I need to figure out if my head needs to get in line with my heart you know, because my heart was like big and open and spacious. And I'm like, maybe my head needs to get in line and realize the Bible does not say what we thought it said. Or I need to figure out how to keep my head where it was and stay rooted in this conservative theology, but force my heart to get like, either way, I had to line these things up somehow. Mm. And, um, you know, fortunately, spoiler alert, I came out <laughs> on the other end of that, um, deciding that we have, we being the church, uh, we've been wrong on this one. We've gotten it wrong. We have used a handful of uh, verses to uh, justify a kind of discriminatory theology and certainly discriminatory practices, both in the church and outside the church, rooted in a misunderstanding, sometimes a mistranslation um, of just a handful of, of verses. And, and it's we're wrong. We've gotten it wrong. Um, to the extent that a person has decided to organize their life and even on some level their society around the teachings of the Bible, the Bible does not provide justification to discriminate against those who are LGBTQ. And if a person scales that up and says that God's will is revealed in the Bible, then therefore, if that's where you're at, then God has no condemnation for those who are LGBTQ. They are they are loved children of God, just like the token white guy here, token straight guy here. So anyway, that's, whew, that was a wonderful little biographical sketch of yeah. kind of where I came from and a little bit of how I got to where I am. Today. Yeah, totally. Thank you for sharing that. And one thing that I'm very intrigued about by your journey, especially like when I was reading your story um, in On Clover, you were a pastor when oh, yeah. you where right. you were mm -hmm. in, you were like in a position of leadership in a church right. system, right? That was anti-gay and you chose to draw a line in the sand. Um, I, feel free to get into this as much as you'd like, but I'm curious to hear from you. Like, what was that like having to make that decision and then having to deal with the fallout? I know what it's like as a gay guy coming from a church position, right? So whatever, but I'm imagining it's like a different experience to be a straight person holding this line, right? Um, what was that? I mean, just whatever you want to share. I just would like to yeah. hear a bit about what that was no, like. I, yeah, I appreciate you filling in that gap there because I did. So I have been a pastor for 20 years. So yes, I was pastoring um, during all of this, as I as I refer to it, this auditing of my belief system. And um, at that time, so from 2007 to 2011, I was working at a church outside of um, outside of Phoenix in the Chandler Gilbert area. And it was a, whatever, it was a lovely church filled with lovely people, right? I, I don't have a lot of bad things to say about it. They ended up firing me over this, yes. And that was painful, yes. Um, but I, I can see how they were doing, they were doing the same thing I was doing, which was trying to live out their convictions as best as they could, just like I was. But while I was there, it, it, it really wasn't, as oftentimes is the case, it wasn't a safe um, environment to be open about a lot of the, 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 the questions I was asking and the beliefs that I was challenging, the things that I was like maybe no longer believing. Like I remember one of the very, one of the very first rather significant beliefs that I audited and decided I could no longer hold with a sense of integrity or morality was the idea of hell being an eternal state of conscious torment. And I remember just thinking, that's kind of, feels like a big one, you know, coming from the, uh, the Baptist world, the evangelical world that I came from, that felt like a big one. And I didn't uh, um, feel as though there was anyone on staff that I worked with, or even in the community that I could talk to these things about. Um, and then other ones started to fall after that, kind of a, the way that we might hold the Bible, the, the way that we might uh, think about uh, creation and evolution. And so when it finally came to this digging into the clobber passages, the, the handful of verses that um, have been used to justify queer discrimination, and when I came out on the other side of that being, as I said, like, wow, we've gotten this wrong, um, 
yeah, it was not a, there was no one I could talk to about it. <laughs> right. So you're there it, in this, in the smallest way. Um, and, and I tiptoe into this analogy very carefully because I want to be respectful, but also there is some shared experience between those uh, such as yourself who have an internal awareness of your orientation and yet externally are, are living sort of in opposition to that just to try to, to try to fit in, to try to belong, to try to do what you got to do to be a part of the group. Um, there, there was a, like, that was true for me too. I was living this sort of, th this tension of my internal convictions and my external reality. Once again, we're out of alignment. So just like I had to line up my head and my heart on this topic, then it got to a point where my, uh, my insides and my outsides were totally out of alignment. And in the book, I talk about how, I think there's a, I call it the Naaman effect. I think it comes from two Kings chapter five. There's this really cool story. I think it's cool um about this uh yeah this this foreign king who um has this uh powerful servant who gets sick and he ends up going to uh, israel to find healing and elijah is able to help him find healing and so as a result uh naaman feels as though oh the true god really is the the israelite god the true god is yahweh um you might say he converted to a kind of belief in Yahweh, but then he knew he had to go back and serve his king in the foreign religion in a foreign land. And he says to Elijah, basically, like, what do I do when I have to go and like kneel with my master in this other God's temple? And Elijah just tells him, like, go, go in peace. Like, it's the sense of it was almost this divine permission slip to live out of alignment, knowing that sometimes we are in contexts and situations where we do have to be intentional and cautious and careful with how we who we make ourselves vulnerable to. And so I call this the Naaman effect where you, mm -hmm. you do, you kind of live out of uh, alignment for a while, but I think Mike, and I could be wrong about this, but I think ultimately such a, such a state is not a long-term sustainable solution for any kind of living that resembles wholeness or well-being or health. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I, do. I was with someone this last week who's a very principled person and uh, you know, they have a very strict sense of, of integrity and what that means to them. And I think a person like that would never in a million years consider doing a name and thing because they would be like, no, that's a violation of uh, you, know, you know, they just have this dishonesty is always wrong or living out of a, you know, not who you really are is always wrong. And I get that. I, I get that. It's just, it's not entirely how I move through the world. And yet I also know to say it again, like that kind of living has a shelf life. You know what I mean? Like totally. you might do it for a while for a place of self-preservation. You might do it for a while because you're still just allowing yourself to live in the tension and you don't, you don't want to make any hasty decision, but eventually you're like, okay, there's a freedom, there's a liberation that I can see just over that hill. Mm. And when the wind blows just right, I can kind of smell like the Wetzel pretzels at the, at the mall. Like you can just, oh, there's a bit of, of, of uh, delicacy and delight just around the corner. <sighs> okay, I think it's time to, I think it's time to come out, right? Totally. Come out for you, yeah. come out of the, sexual closet <laughs> for me come out of the theological closet yeah. i mean again um i want to be careful how i how i connect these metaphors but uh yeah so that was what it was for me it was yes. super painful and scary to be in a context where i was pretty sure that once i started being more open with my ideas that it would not be welcome and as i write in the book that <laughs> I was correct. It was not welcome. <laughs> Once they found out that I was um, that I, that I affirmed gay people, I was I was fired within five days. Just out of there. Um, yeah. So I won't tell the whole story because that's part of what the book is for. Right. For the sake of time, I'm going to sidestep so many questions I have for you. But yes, for those of you listening, if you want to get Unclobber, which is one of Colby's books, he does go into detail about that process and his experience and how he was treated. And I remember reading that and just feeling so validated. 
for different reasons on how I was treated in ministry, specifically when I came. Anyway, it was like really encouraging to be like, oh my gosh, he gets it. I'm not the only one. This is crazy making. It was crazy to experience that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, there's more. You can get into the details of that in, in Colby's book. Yeah, it involves Obama and Chipotle and all sorts of things. So. <laughs> nice. so, okay, so Colby, moving forward, you pastored a church for a while that was inclusive, right? You yeah. And you, you guys like went out of your way to be an affirming church. Um, I wanted to hear a bit of that journey, some of the stories and experiences that came with that, the post yeah. you held, the, the congregation you were leading, whatever, any and all the things that came with that. We'd just love to hear a bit of like what that experience was like and some of the notes that you took from that yeah. season of your life. Yeah. Yeah. So I got fired from that Arizona church in 2011. Um, we moved back to Oregon for a few months just to get our footing um, back underneath us. And then I got connected to a church down here in San Diego uh, that was a bit of a dumpster fire. It's one of those you don't know till you're there, you know, like it, it seems nice and, and shiny on the surface, but then, you know, it doesn't take too long. You're like, what did I get myself into? But I was so desperate at that point. Like I was just, I was needing something and this was like a shiny object of, oh, there's a way to, there are people out here that are doing church in uh, an inclusive, progressive way that isn't like Episcopalian, you know, and I love Episcopalians, but it's just also, it's not my DNA. I had a different way that I wanted to do church. Um, but anyway, that church in San Diego didn't work out um, for a, a number of reasons, but out of the ashes of that dumpster fire, <laughs> uh, we had created a, a really beautiful group of uh, friends and community and family here in San Diego all of whom said, if you will sort of, if you'll stick around, like, um, we'll support you in doing this new thing. Like we'll, we'll start something from the ground up. And, and so we did that in 2014, um, church, church was called Sojourn Grace Collective. And for, yeah, from the get go, it was founded on values of inclusion and, uh, and justice and egalitarian leadership and, um, one of our early taglines, we didn't use it for long. One of our early taglines was, um, uniquely Christian, but not exclusively, which was to say, we understand we're coming from a, a we're, we're standing on the shoulders of 2000 years, give or take of this tradition and heritage of Christianity. So we're mm -hmm. not, we're not reinventing the wheel entirely. We're connected to it. We did communion every week. Um, our, our, our services by and large had that rhythm of prayer and song and some sort of teaching component. Uh, so it was, you know, uniquely Christian in that way, but not exclusively because we understood that for many people that we were, um, that we were reaching or that who were coming to us, like they were done with Christianity for really good reasons. Like they they realized that religion swindled them, you know, that religion offered them something that they couldn't deliver on that religion caused direct harm to them. And yet they still longed for a kind of community that was oriented around a sense that there is more to life than just protons and pizza and plastic, you know, there's like something underneath it all and in it all and through it all. And so we kind of had this eclectic group, this diverse group of straight people, queer people, white people, non-white people, men and women, and eventually sort of non-binary, uh, Christian, agnostic. Um, it was just this really beautiful mix that, that for eight and a half years, uh, I was blessed and privileged to shepherd and to pastor and to, um, try, I don't know how well he succeeded, but to try and model what a life looks like when we are pursuing wholeness, when we are, um, and by wholeness, we talked about three types of wholeness, spiritual, social, and emotional wholeness. Like that was, that, that eventually became our mission was fostering wholeness spiritually, socially, and emotionally. And to really just show up with authenticity every week and uh and to talk about these things and some weeks it would be a sort of a christiany sounding talk from the bible and other weeks not and depending on which week and what flavor was given 
half the community would be kind of bummed by it. The other half would love it. Then the next week you switch it around and this half would love it. This half would be bummed by it. Like we never really made everybody happy. Everyone was a little bit uh, discontent and yet everybody was connected by a deep rooted belief in their belonging. And that's really what the heart wants is we just want to know that we belong somewhere, not fit in, not fit in. Fit in is like, you got to look like this and think like that and talk like this and believe these things, cut these parts off of you so you can fit in. Belonging is you get to, you get to just be entirely as you are. And so we would, you know, one of our mottos was it all belongs. And we would talk about that just constantly. It all belongs. All of your, all the parts of you, all your pasts, um, every, every, every part of you belongs and we all belong. So it was a, oh, man, it was a gift, man. We did have to close it in October of 2020. Ultimately the pandemic kind of did to us what it did to many bakeries and auto shops, um, around the country. Uh, but, uh, no regrets, man. I have nothing but gratitude in my heart for that time in my life and the, the literally thousands of people that we were able to minister to and love on and show a path of, um, of humanity, uh, that, that really, I think brought people back to the core truth, which is that you are a loved child of God, full stop. Mm. That was what we did. And I loved it. It was great. Nice. Love it. That's awesome. So cool. I'm reading about your church in the book and I'm like, what is a church like this? Like, um, and this has kind of like a fairy tale, like yeah. idea in my head, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was before I like, I'd visited any affirming churches. So I had like this, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mystified. Uh huh. Like, yeah. Promised land scenario in my mind. Um, so obviously leading any kind of group of people in any fashion is going to come with grit and challenges and difficulties and whatever. Yeah. Um, I wanted to hear a bit about what it was like for you to pastor an inclusive church in, I would seem like a denomination. I don't know if that's right, the right word, but like in a denomination that's not historically or traditionally already affirming, I don't, did your church have a denomination? Were you non-denominational? No, and then, we were, we were totally independent. Okay. We had no connection. Okay. And so then basically everyone who came to your church was already affirming of the yes. question. Yeah. So um, that was uh, from the get go. Now, some people slipped through the cracks, <laughs> but they didn't, they didn't last long. Um, <laughs> we tried to, uh, in the first couple months when I built our website, I, I tried to, in my mind, I was thinking, um, if we just come right out and plaster rainbows everywhere and just like put it in your face uh then you know that what what message does that signal and i and i it's kind of hard for me to remember what the thinking was but i think it was something along the lines of that that whole phrase of like oh we we let women preach here it just sounds super like pejorative or 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 we let black people worship here or we let we let gay people it just had this air of like that feels weird. Um, so I, I was trying to build a site with verbiage that wasn't so in your face, but that in my mind was like clear that all are welcome here. Now, uh, one of the things that happened pretty quickly was that we had a, a friend of mine, her name's Candace. Uh, she came down to, to preach for us one Sunday and she was talking to me. She's uh, married to her wife and they have two kids. And she was talking about her journey of trying to find a church where her family could belong to. And she said, Colby, what you don't, what you may not understand is that um, we have to do quite a bit of like homework and digging to figure out if the church is safe for us. And this was back in 2014. Now it's, things have changed a little bit. We can talk about that in a minute, but back then it was, um, she's like, we, we have gone to many churches that their website seemed to indicate that we would be safe there only to discover that we're not like, it's not actually affirming. Um, they're welcome, but not affirming. Right. Um, it's the old bait and switch model of everybody's welcome here. And then you realize, Oh, but the closer you get to the Holy of Holies, the more they're like, Oh, but you know, we need you to not be gay. Sorry. That wasn't clear. Um, and so she said, all I'm asking you to do as the, as the church is, is to do your part of the work to make it clear for us 
that this is a place where we could belong. And that flipped a switch in my mind where I'm like, oh no, we need to, we need to make it obvious that this is a place where those from marginalized communities know that they can belong. Uh, so we like changed our logo and we changed all sorts of verbiage on the website. Um, so, but I say that because yes, from the get go, it was rooted into our values, our core values that we were going to be an inclusive church, but it took us a little bit as we were building the plane in the air, it took us a little bit to realize what that meant in terms of how we were sort of public facing about it. So then we became super clear and obvious about it. But even then it was shocking to me that there would like there was one individual who'd been coming to our church for a couple of years and had made it, made it, what is this, some sort of like reality show, um, <laughs> uh, was, was his name was in the hat to become an, one of our board members. And so he was going through the interview process. And in the interview process, it came out that he was still not, he was still like kind of on the fence about like affirming of gay people. And I wasn't in the interview because I, you know, that that's not wasn't my role. But I remember hearing that being like, man, this guy has been like here for a couple of years now. That's fascinating to me like that. Um, and you'll be glad to know he eventually did become fully affirming and all that is all that is gravy now. Um, but yeah, I think there were some people who. Who I guess still found it sojourn when we said it all belongs uh, that they truly they truly took us up on that, but yeah, but we didn't have any patience for anything that was that stank of old uh, ideas and toxic theology. Like if we ever had guest speakers, I vetted the crap out of them to make sure that they were fully affirming, you know, like we weren't, we weren't beating around the bush there. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was, uh, that was very important to us that, mm -hmm. that that was clear about who we were and what we were about. Nice. Very cool. Was there, so speaking to you as like an ally, right? So someone who's coming from the straight perspective, were there any particular unique challenges you had to work through as a straight man pastoring queer people? I'm wondering like, what would that be like having to do the work, you know, academically, theologically, whatever, and then like working with people in the still ministerial position? Were there any particular like challenges or like curveballs you had to navigate excuse me you had to navigate um from that position yeah a couple of thoughts on that one is one of the things i i discovered pretty quickly after publishing unclobber was that there are a couple different schools of thought in this sort of niche world that we occupy and one of the, and I go back to it all belongs. Like we, we need all of the, we need all the schools of thought, like the path toward ultimate peace and shalom and justice has to be multi-pronged. Like there's not going to be one monolithic way that works for everybody. Uh, we, we need all the approaches. So um, I remember shortly after the book came out, I got some blowback on Twitter, but not from the not from the folks that I was expecting, right? The conservative evangelical crowd in whom would have vehemently disagreed with, with my conclusions, but rather from um, like a gay atheist segment of the, of the community was, was very um, antagonistic toward me and my book, not because they read it. I mean, that, that is never the case, right? We, <laughs> when does that ever happen? But just because I was a straight person writing a book that, I think they described it as explains homosexuality, which obviously I don't explain homosexuality. You know, that's not the point, but that word was in the subtitle of the book. So in their mind, it was just, here's another straight guy profiting off of queer mm. people. And I remember, you know, I was sort of naive at the time and just pretty new in, in, in that space. And I was like, I, I, I wasted a few hours one day trying to like, argue and be like, wait, that's not what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And I realized pretty quickly, this goes nowhere. Like nobody's minds are ever changed on, <laughs> on social media. Um, but that was, that was, a, uh, it was an interesting surprise to me. Um, and I had to really sort of sit with that and be like, what'd you think Colby that you're just gonna be some sort of savior writing in and everybody was gonna like welcome you and thank you. 
And I probably did have some of that in me because I'm a, I can be a self-centered narcissistic, um, you know, person that is in me a hundred percent. That is in me. But once I, once I kind of worked through that a bit and was able to accept that people are allowed to not like the fact that I wrote this book, people are allowed to be bummed out that another straight person is writing a book about a topic that doesn't touch their experience directly. But then the counter to that, so this is why I talk about like there are different schools of thought, a counter to that, or at least one that sits alongside it, um, is I have, you know, the, the, the myriad messages and interactions that I've had with people over the last six years since the book came out. Um, I would say a majority of them are from queer people. Uh, and a majority of that majority say something to the effect of this book meant so much to me and did so much in me precisely because you are a straight man. And what, what they mean by that, and they go on to explain is, is because it's, it's my people, Mike, right? It's the, 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 the straight white men of history that have historically been the ones that have sort of decided the top-down theology and the policies of the church and have created the barriers that have kept people on the margins and that have decided who's in and who's out and who's right and who's wrong and so on. And so the, for those folk who have been harmed by the church, the pastors generally look like me, right? And, or, or the Sunday school teachers or the parents. And so there's a sense in which, um, two, two things, there's a sense in which me embodying some of those same identity markers and coming along and saying something different and offering a different conclusion and, and providing a safe landing place, it does a healing work for people. Um, and then the second thing is, I think my words are able to sometimes land with people because it is seen as not being biased because oftentimes they might read a book by a gay person and be like, well, you, you've got a pretty big dog in this fight. Right. So can we really trust you? And just because of that, people can maybe see my words as a bit more objective. So I say all that because the, like, I get it. There's a sense in which some people, and we, I don't know if this book would be published today, to be honest with you. Like, I think now a publisher would be like, no, like, we're not going to, like, you need to stay in your lane sort of thing. And I think we've over on the left and the progressive end, we've, uh, we've maybe overcorrected this. Um, and we've, we've, we're missing opportunities for people to have shared understanding and empathy and appreciation and you know by just saying no you can only talk about this very narrow set of experiences that you have and if you if they're not like yours then what do you have to offer it and i just think like i get the heartbeat behind where that comes from but i think we're i think we're we're, we're missing out on a lot of things and and i, I don't think on is the best book in the world i just know the impact that it's had on people and that would be sad to me if that wasn't the case you know what i mean okay mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't totally. Know, I don't know how, how I got on that tangent, but here we are. <laughs> Can you hear the 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 uh, leaf blower in the background? Is that? Yeah, a, I was wondering. I was like, is it a saw blade? Is it a blender? <laughs> it's a leaf blower. There's some there's some leaves being blown outside the property here. My apologies. <laughs> no worries. It's not too bad. Um. Yeah. Well, for what I'm going to speak to that for a second. Uh, I had leaf my whole blowing. No, <laughs> I'm. I acknowledge the leaf blowing. We could use a leaf blower outside my house today. Um, several yeah, people please, from. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I had. Well, specifically on your book, I had my team. Some people came with me from Reading to Nashville on this journey, and you know they were like doing the work of becoming affirming, feeling the threat, the social cost, the you know. All that. And I had them after I came out. I had them do a roundtable discussion, and I asked them, and they didn't know what the questions were going to be, but I asked them of all the books and resources that we came across as a team that we like digested to, that helped you become affirming of the queer community. What was, what was your favorite? What was the most impactful? What, you know, helped you the most? And the, I think almost all of them said unclobber and they're like, it's kind of awkward, but mm -hmm. for me it was unclobber. I think the way you wrote it, the details, the, however it is you crafted this book, this work, it, it makes it accessible. I've read a lot of books on queer affirming theology. Yours is like, I feel like you're taking complex layered, you know, 
contextual details and making them on a lower shelf for the average person who cares about this stuff to be able to take it in and yet not um, sacrifice, you know, intellectual integrity and um, the details that are necessary to support your argument or whatever. It was, I think it's really well done. So yeah, I mean, I agree in terms of like, I agree with the heartbeat of, Hey, not your experience, stay in your lane. I'm like, there's a place and appropriate like expectation and standard for that. Yes. But also like, we need many voices on things and there are people who aren't going to hear other works that were done that maybe have even done more in-depth work, but they'll hear yours because of the way you communicated it and you're certain. So like, to me, I'm like, ah, it's been so helpful. And like I told you before we even got on here, like your book is like step one that I'm usually suggest to anybody who's asking me for like direction on how to start becoming affirming in their theology. I'm like, start with Unclobber because it's so accessible. Right. So, I mean, just for what it's worth as a gay man, specifically in the church context, I have found your book to be very helpful. Like, dare I say, essential for a lot of important people in my life um, to get where they got to be able to see me in my full humanity. So I can't help but be appreciative <laughs> and like vote for the legitimacy of it, you know? Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. So when it comes to like working with Christians still to this day, like I get a lot of DMs regularly, lots of different stories, perspectives, you know, challenges um, around queer people being affirmed, celebrated, embraced, specifically within Christian spaces. Um, I wanted to ask you in this conversation, what are some things that you would say as an ally, like in your position and maybe like proximity to the queer community, what are some things you would share from your journey for people who are like, who are listening, who are like, hey, I think I, I want to be an ally, but I have some things in the way, or I'm intimidated, or I don't know where to start, or, you know, just like different barriers that have come in the way for them to get there. What are some things that you would share that were helpful for you in like being a legitimate, constructive, safe ally for queer people? maybe particularly in the Christian context. Hmm. Let me let me speak to the specifically the Christian context for a second because my assumption for those who identify as Christian is that the the words and the teachings of Jesus still matter. Okay? So that's, that's my starting point. So speaking to anyone out there for whom they are compelled by what they read in the gospels. Um, cause what I'm about to say may not be of much interest to a lot of people. Cause it's like, so what, that's a cool story. But for those who are, are, are still taking the mantle of, of Christian, I, I, I find the following story to be, um, really meaningful and impactful. It has been for me. So it might be for some of your audience. And that's the story of Jesus healing a blind man uh, in the Gospel of Luke. So Jesus and his entourage are walking outside the city of Jericho. And there's a, a blind man on the side of the road who hears the hustle and bustle of the crowd go by and, uh, you know, ask somebody what's what's going on with all the commotion. And somebody says that Jesus of Nazareth is coming through town. And so, somehow this man had heard, I guess, that that this rabbi from from Galilee had powers. Somehow he'd heard that that he, there's something that maybe this guy could do to help the, the the man who's who's blind, and so he he yells out from his spot sitting on the side of the road, "Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me!" And the disciples who are sort of surrounding and shielding Jesus from the crowd, they they turn to the man and and they silence him, like, "Shh, quiet, keep it down. Like we don't we don't really have time for you. We have places to go. We have things to do. Um, keep it down. Like you you." You just need to stay, stay, stay in your place here on the outside. And the man just, it, it just, you know, emboldens him and he just shout, shouts out louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And this time he catches the ear of Jesus. And I like to think, Mike, that at that point, Jesus had a, a couple options available to him. Okay. So we know like from the story of the Roman centurion whose servant got sick, that uh, Jesus could just kind of from afar, just be like, all right, like, you're healed moving on you know that, that could have been a, an option for him he could have 
he could have just yelled back across the road like yeah what what can i do for you you know <laughs> um he could have made one of those magical divine spirit infused spitballs you know, <laughs> and, and like flung it across the road and maybe tried to hit the guy and heal him from afar I, I, I he could have done a number of things but the thing that he does i just i find really really noteworthy he turns to his friends he turns to his disciples he turns to the the guys that were shielding him from others or more accurately keeping others on the outside out he turns to them and he says go get him and bring him to me and i remember a number of years ago reading that and being struck by this being struck by this sense that it is on the shoulders of it is the responsibility of those who had kept people on the margins it is up to them to tear down the walls that they had built and to go and to bring the marginalized like back into the fold so i say that because if there's any you know if there are allies or there are people who are sort of wanting to be an ally or or again and, and they're specifically interested in still or compelled by the stories of Jesus. I think part of what we can hear in that story is that Jesus is saying to those who have been a part, like myself, have been a part of groups that have historically kept queer people on the margins, hush, keep it down, be quiet. There's no place for you here. There's no space for you here. I hear God saying to us, it is, it is your responsibility to go and essentially undo the harm that you've caused to go and restore what you have broken, to tear down the walls that you have built. Um, and that, so that, that, that does something in me, you know, that, that, um, that matters to me that I take some responsibility, not just for my own person, because personally I have, I have years in my history in which I embodied this, um, judgmental, um, theology uh, of discrimination and and communicating to anyone who doesn't think like me that they are less than like I have my own personal history to account for but I can scale it up beyond that and realize that I am a part of something that's bigger than me that has a lot more responsibility um, to 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 really try and put some of that to rights in the own the small ways that I can the small ways that I can um, I I I hear the calling to do that. And that's kind of what I've given my life's work to in the last 10 years. Mm, wow. <sighs> yeah, thank you. So if you were going to give advice to the people listening to you who are like maybe hearing that call a little bit, like, I think maybe he's right. I think maybe I have some complicity, maybe some responsibility here. Uh, um, what would you say to them to nudge them in the direction that you think they should be heading in, um, suggestions on ways that they can practically participate in that process? Like, what would you give them as far as like tips or advice? If they're like, I think maybe I'm not sure. Oh, and then the looming threat of what they'd lose or the consequences is kind of helping them stay passively, you know, static. Yeah. I'd say four things. <laughs> <laughs> Thing number one is if you're not already, um, do what you can to find some community that has queer people in it. Okay, build build some of those relationships, um, and that that's a little triggering for some people because in our old evangelical days, all the relationships had an agenda to it. Like we build relationships so that we could save them. <laughs> so that we could eventually turn the conversation around to well, what do you think about Jesus right and so if you were to die really today. To, yeah exactly if you were to die right now <laughs> um not for me I don't think but uh um god some people had to think that like is this guy about to kill me right <laughs> um murdered by some punk teenager on the beach uh no but like so that, so that can get clunky like a lot of us weren't really, it wasn't really modeled for us how to just have honest, genuine, authentic, vulnerable relationships. I guess that could be true for 
all humanity, not just the yeah. church, but I think it's uniquely distorted mm-hmm. in the environments we came from because everything had this kind of weird agenda to try to save people. But um, so, so let's name that. Let's, let's appreciate that that's in us. And then, and then maybe hold up as a, a stronger value. Just see that uh, it matters that we are in proximity with and, and hearing the story. And this goes into the number two, like hear and know the stories of, of those who are, um, who have lived this, who have lived what it's like to be sort of stuck in a closet of shame, who have lived the experience of feeling like I, I can't really be who I am or I'll lose everything. Um, to, to know the experiences of those who have earnestly given years, decades of their life to try and pray the gay away, to try and fix what they were told was broken, um, only to finally come to a point of realization that there was nothing wrong with him to begin with. Like, I I, I don't think us straight folk should ever have a a point at which our heart um, can be broken too many times over here in their stories. I just think that we need to continue to be shaped by them over and over and over again. Uh, the third thing is, um, if you are still going to a church that is not affirming, stop. Like, just leave. Just uh, find somewhere else. Um, now, I've got a pretty staunch stance on that. Um, I do... I do appreciate there's some nuance and there's some caveats and obviously people can do what they want with their life. Don't do what Colby says, but I am of the strong opinion that people should stop supporting both with their money and with their time and their presence and their energy. They should stop supporting churches that are not affirming. Um, a lot of people say like they want to stay to be the, to help make change. And I just, honestly, I, I don't see that work very often. Um, I see that, usually just end in disappointment and disillusionment and people being like, Oh, I wish I would have left years ago. Yeah, you, exactly. So yeah. leave now, um, yeah. especially good gravy, especially if you are a parent out there and you have kids, um, can you just for a second stop and think, what if one of your kids comes out to you down, you know, down the road, how are you going to justify to them that, Oh yeah, little Timmy. I mean, you know that we always accepted, you know, gay people and you were safe to come out to us. Okay, well then mom, dad, why did you keep going to this church that like twice a year would preach against people like me? Oh, well, um, because we really liked our dinner group. Cool, <laughs> I'm glad enchiladas were more important than raising me in an environment where I could feel not shamed for who I am. You know what I mean? Like if you're a parent, just for a second, think about the future of your kids and, and what sort of, what you're showing them by where you're showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fourth thing um, that I would say uh, by just a way of advice um, is to have, I think Brene Brown calls it a, a, a strong spine and a, and a soft heart. I forget, ah, shoot, I should have remembered that before I said it. But the idea is I, people talk about having the thick skin, you know, like being uh, you know, being able to, to, to not be hurt. Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the work of being an ally, part of why I do what I do is because I know based on my own layers of privilege and based on my own position in society and based on the things that, that, are, are, that are often afforded me, um, I know that I can sustain a number of arrows. And I know that it might just be one arrow that could take out the person behind me. And so I'll, I'll be out here and I'll, I'll, I'll take the shots. Like I'm wearing this hat that says heretic. Um, and part of it, shout out to a uh, heretic coffee company in Portland um, and Josh white. So thanks for the hat, go buy their coffee. Um, but I get called these names all the time, heretic and false prophet and wolf and sheep's clothing and, and all that. Uh, and honestly, like it doesn't really, that doesn't do anything to me. It's fine. Like people can say what they want to say about me. I know they're not even talking about me. They don't even know me. Um, but that's just one small way of how like I can take all these arrows. I can show up and I can debate a conservative theologian. I can um, be in these spaces because um, I know that uh, uh, I can I can take these arrows. And but I know that the more vulnerable f- folk, um, it might just be one errant comment that someone makes that is enough to kind of take them out. So 
to my to my fellow allies or one of the allies know that part of how I think we can steward our um, our, our privilege is to um, is to show up in spaces and in ways that don't seek to replace, that don't seek to center ourselves, but seek to uh, help move the larger conversation forward uh, by by being in places and spaces where we can sustain the hits um, that won't take us out and we can keep on going. Mm, totally. That makes sense? It does make sense. I love All it. All right. Thank you. appreciate that. Oh. So I did want to touch on this a little bit on point number maybe two you made about people wanting to stay in non-affirming churches because they, you know, we need people on the inside, you know, and yeah. it's important for people to hold spaces there and whatever. Um, your general, because I'm, I feel pretty clear. I'm like, if you have, I, at this point, I'm like, Hey, if you're at a non-affirming church, leave. I agree with everything you said. I'm like, get out, don't negotiate, don't support, don't continue to like add to and vote by being present in spaces like that. Yeah. What would you say? I kind of, I'm just wondering if you want to speak a little clearer to what would you say to the people who are like, okay, Colby, but like, how are those places going to change if all of us just leave? What would you say to the person with that thought process? Uh, yeah, I'd say a couple of things. I'd say one, maybe tamp your ego down a little bit because uh, like maybe you're not as important as you think. <laughs> uh, I don't, I, I only mean that to be partially rude. Uh, <laughs> like, do you really think you have the capacity to change things? So I think... Here, let me let me take a step back. There's a there is a a myth out there that people don't change, people don't change. But obviously, people change. Obviously, people change. That is like the second law of thermodynamics. Like every everything is changing and transforming. So people people do change. You're an example of that. I'm an example of that. So people do change, and they do change their minds. That is a thing that happens. And at the same time, I don't think that I can never change a person's mind. I don't, I've been doing this work for 10 years and I don't know that I've changed anyone's mind. Um, so how those two, two things fit together for me is when I look back at some of the radical shifts that have happened in my own thinking, I can I can maybe name influences, I can name books that I read, I can, I can read people that might've played a part in that. But the actual point at which there was a moment where I believed X and then there was a moment where I believed not X, like that actual shift. I can't explain that. I don't, I can't really, to me, that's just the thing that happened that is beyond me. And that grace is just kind of the only word that I have to kind of shrug my shoulders at. Um, so I can't change people's mind when people's mind change. That is just an act of grace. And maybe I played a part in it, maybe not, but I can't actually do it. So when people have the belief that, that I need to stay here because I need to help be a part of change. Part of me wants to say, you might be pushing us, you know, this might be a Sisyphean quest where you're pushing a boulder up a hill. that's just going to keep falling back on you. Um, and again, people that have, that have eventually left almost always look back and say, I should have done it sooner. Like there's mm -hmm. not a sense of if I would have stayed a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, to the point of if everybody leaves, how does change ever happen? Again, I, um, I think maybe we're just, we're, we're, I think we're trying to, I think maybe we're trying to rationalize and justify our, our longing to stay because leaving is really hard and staying, I think sometimes is easier. And so we look for ways to rationalize that. Um, the people who make the decisions at your church, like you staying probably isn't going to make a difference and you leaving probably isn't going to make a difference at some point they're going to have to just walk the journey that they're on and walk the path that they're on and maybe that will lead to them shifting their theology if if so that's awesome grace if not then they'll just be like 97 percent of the rest of the churches um so really where we sh i think rather than sticking around trying to be agents of change in our churches we should be leaving them and helping support the churches that are out there doing the work mm. part of why our church closed is because we just didn't have the funding that we needed to, to keep it going um which is just boggles the mind because there's so many people out there that want places like sojourn to exist but who don't actually put their money where their mouth is 
you know, and I get it because the church and money is a complicated thing. So oftentimes when people are burned by the church, their wallet's the last thing that they're going to like open up again, makes all the sense in the world. And um, don't forget to invest in the communities and in the people who are really trying to do some of this important work. So, and people look, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of great options out there either. So a lot of people are like, well, there's no places in my hometown. So, um, you know, this is the, the, this is the best of the worst. I'm like, I get it. And there's the internet. So like you, you, there are ways to find community. There are getting content should be easy. You don't need the preacher down the road. You can get sermons anywhere now. Um, but I just think that, that people are ultimately trying to convince themselves of why they can stay, uh, rather than asking like, what is all the, what, what sort of good can I do by leaving? There's just a lot of good. The freaking harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, man. That's never been more true than it is now with regards to the, the lack of open and affirming and progressive churches compared to how many people are looking for communities like that. Totally. Thank you. Yeah. Well said. Appreciate the explicit nature of that. Thanks. Um, so Colby, you're, you had a book come out, um, during the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. I want to ask if you would care to share about that book and also just any and all of the ways that people can plug into what you're doing. How do they get access to and get around you and, you know, exposed to your work, hit us with all the things. What do you yeah, got going great. on? Thanks. So my second book uh, is called the shift surviving and thriving after moving from conservative to progressive Christianity. And the, uh, the concept is that it's a, like a survival guide for becoming a progressive Christian. Uh, it's not a book on how to deconstruct. I don't, I don't even know if I use the word deconstruct in there. It's more like once a person has sort of done an audit of their faith and, and sort of discovered that maybe they don't belong, or maybe they were kicked out of their more conservative, uh, communities, how do they begin to, how do they move towards um, a, an expression of Christianity that is still somewhat rooted in this ancient tradition, but has a more progressive, open, expansive, inclusive uh, posture to it. So that's that's what the book is about. And uh, yeah, it came out just a few weeks after the pandemic hit the United States in 2020. So the the tour, you know, got canceled, and um, people weren't buying books on like spiritual awakening. They were buying books on how to grow potatoes, you know, in the backyard <laughs> and how to survive in a zombie apocalypse. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I, I had, I had to sort of cancel slash pause the tour and now it's three years later. So now I'm back on tour. I'm back on the road. I just, uh, went to, to Sacramento and Portland the last couple of weeks. I'm heading to Nashville, um, your hometown here, uh, and then to Phoenix. And then I've got, uh, Denver coming up and Chicago and, uh, Sarasota, Florida and Charlotte. And so I'll be kind of just traipsing around the country i'd love for people to to uh, come come out if i'm if i'm near them and you can get all that information at colbymartinonline.com uh, i'm easy to find on twitter and instagram at colby martin um, you can just google my name and uh, it's, it's a unique enough name that i kind of take over most of the the front of, of google's uh, top top results so thanks mom for the name <laughs> if it was like john martin or adam martin that might be a little harder to find but Totally. Nice. Okay, cool. Perfect. Thanks, Colby. Yeah. So those of you out there who, you know, you need, I mean, specifically Colby's strength that he brings to this space of crossing the non-affirming to affirming line or from conservative to progressive Christianity. Um, Colby is very pastoral, very articulate, um, detailed. He provides substantiation for the claims he's making and takes his time. It just does a great job making sure you're safe and have the box checked as you keep moving forward with him. So if that's your speed and your flavor, which I think is probably really helpful for most people in those spaces, Colby's your guy. So go check out his books, check out his website, check out his um, social media stuff. Any video he makes is usually um, like painfully beautiful and makes my stuff look like I'm in a, in a cave, which is fine. It's amazing. Anyway, so go check him out. Um, Colby, I'll drop the, link in the show notes below so everyone you can easily find him down there colby thanks for being here thanks for doing this with me thanks for being who you are in the world and doing this work i've said this in several occasions but i'm going to say it again i so appreciate the work you've done the advocacy 
the choices you've made, the sacrifices, your work paved the way for me to get to a place of affirming myself and being able to come out sooner. You accelerated that process and supported and made it safer for me. So I am so thankful. I'm forever indebted to like the work you've invested into this and I really appreciate what you've done. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks. <laughs> and everybody else, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to dive deeper, check out MikeMayashiro.com.